All right, well, good evening, everybody. Um, go ahead and take your Bibles, if you have them, open them up to 1 Corinthians chapter number 3. We're going to be looking at that in just a moment. As you're doing that, I want to take a second to give this church and, well, anybody who it applies to, the heartfelt thank you from myself, from my family. Um, Maybe not all of you, certainly, but many of you are aware that, well, 2021's been kind of a tough year for me health-wise. I've had some real challenges. And uh, early in the year, it was so bad that truly I was really close to losing it. And uh, so many of you prayed and prayed and prayed. And uh, God hears and God answers prayer. Hallelujah. God sustains. Um, Even just recently, it wasn't that severe, but I had a situation. And and I knew I could call Sam. I knew that this was a praying church. And and so many people respond. I just want to say thank you. I truly mean that. There's power in prayer, and it really matters. And in my personal situation, when I was really ill earlier this year, um, there, was, there was a hot minute there where I was thinking, well, I, well, I guess this is it. I guess I'm done. And, uh, and that wasn't the case. Obviously, the Lord sustained life, and well, so far, I'm still here. And I say that to say this as an introduction to what we're going to look at is that, well, apparently, God's not done with me yet. And God's not done with you yet either. And as long as we have breath, we have the opportunity to continue on to serve the Lord because that really is why we're here and what this is all about, right? So this is a missions conference, right? And so the mission has to always be front and center. It's the Great Commission, right? We're gonna go, we're gonna evangelize, we're gonna teach all nations, we're gonna make disciples. And we can't let that vision fade. That's why we rally around. I know that you come from good churches and you have that mission in front of you regularly, but there's, there's a reason why we have big events like this. And when we talk about the Great Commission, one of the things that we often talk about also is this idea of church planting. And that's what I want to talk about a little bit tonight. Why do we talk so much about church planting? I mean, actually, if you're a Bible literalist, a student, you'll notice that it's actually not a term that's found in the Bible, right? But that's okay. I mean, is it a Bible concept? I mean, there's a lot of terms that we use that aren't necessarily found explicitly in the Scriptures, Sovereign, Trinity, Rapture, Missions. Those words aren't Bible words, but they're Bible concepts, right? And so certainly this is the case as well. And if you're going to follow along in the notes, the first statement I have for you to consider is, and this is a question I want us to take just a minute to study so that you have a clear understanding in your mind, and that's this. Is the church of Jesus Christ referred to as a plant Does the Bible use that kind of picture? Well, when you get into a study of the planting of the Lord, you're going to find that in the Bible, Israel is clearly considered a plant. In fact, a very specific plant. It's considered a vineyard or a vine. And so very quickly, I have several references for you, but just to prove the point, in Isaiah chapter 5 and verse number 7, the Bible says very clearly, Israel is his vineyard, Judah his pleasant plant. It's pretty clear. Jeremiah 2.21, the Lord says to Israel, yet I planted thee a noble vine. So we have this theme of planting and a vine and a vineyard. 
And certainly that plant that God planted has the intention that it should grow. And so in Isaiah chapter 60, for example, and the context would be Israel during the millennial reign of Jesus Christ where it calls Israel the branch of my planting, the work of my hands. And once it's planted, the vine then is to branch out until the very next chapter in Isaiah, chapter 61 says that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. So when Jesus Christ shows up, and in John 15, and verse number five, he says, I am the vine, ye are the branches. I think he probably still had in mind this Old Testament metaphor for Israel. I mean, he was not yet done with Israel at this point in history. He had not yet been crucified. Yet at the same time, it's not a terrible analogy for what undoubtedly he knew will eventually become the foundation for the church of Jesus Christ. I mean, who was the immediate audience hearing him speak John 15? Well, it was the apostles. And the Apostle Paul makes it very clear in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 20 that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Of course, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And although Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 is using a different metaphor, he's using the metaphor of a building rather than a planting, still it's the proper, proper biblical association for what was going on, and we know that because the Apostle Paul himself uses the same two metaphors together in communicating to the church in Corinth. And in 1 Corinthians chapter three and in verse number nine, Paul said this, for we are laborers together with God, ye, church, ye are God's husbandry. Ye are God's building. He uses both of the metaphors because basically they have the same understanding in what it is he's trying to communicate. Now, old modern English uses a word we don't always use, husbandry. Husbandry is the work of an husbandman. And in John chapter 15 and verse number one, we know that it says, I am the true vine, Jesus says, and my father is the husbandman. So God the Father is the husbandman or the gardener planting a vine with the purpose of that vine growing and expanding and ultimately bearing fruit, right? So in John 15 and verse 8, he says, Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, so shall you be my disciples. And further down in verse 16, you have not chosen me, Jesus said, but I've chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Well, you could say that that's just another way of expressing the same message as the Great Commission, right? And the Great Commission, again, go back to our Bible study about this planting in the Old Testament clearly was given to Israel. They were God's planting and they were to fulfill his great commission. And that great commission actually predates Israel. It goes all the way back to Adam in Genesis chapter one and verse 28, where God says to Adam, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. So God planted his spiritual seed of life in Adam. 
Adam, who is called a son of God. In Luke chapter 3 and verse 38, with the mission of multiplying that all over the earth. Now, we know the story. Sin messed that up. But the promise of the seed, well, that continues. So in Genesis chapter 3, immediately after the fall, in verse 15, we have that great messianic prophecy where the Lord in the rebuke to Satan, he says, well, I'll put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. And it shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. The seed of the woman. Well, that's the promised seed that would eventually be the lineage that would lead to Jesus Christ. And through the Old Testament, it clearly came through Abraham and Isaac, not Ishmael, and Jacob, not Esau. And Jacob is the one whose name is changed to Israel. And ultimately, in the book of Exodus, Israel is more than just a tribe of people. It's not just a family and 12 sons and tribes. Now they become a nation in the book of Exodus. And all along, never forgetting why they existed. Because in Exodus chapter 1, and in verse number 7 we read, And the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly and multiplied and waxed exceeding mightily, mighty, and the land was filled with them. They were fruitful, they multiplied, and the land was filled. They were fulfilling the Great Commission. And you know the story with Israel. Similar to Adam, Israel blew it. They lost fellowship with God and they lost their kingdom. And by the time Jesus showed up, they rejected him and, well, Israel and Jerusalem were destroyed in 70 A.D. But God wasn't finished working. God still had a plan. And that's the church, the church of Jesus Christ. It was a mystery in the Old Testament because it didn't have to happen. But it did happen. It did happen. And once Israel finally rejected God, God turned to go directly to the Gentiles. And he even picked one particular apostle to lead that effort, the Apostle Paul. And in referring to this transition time, the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 13 being sent out as the missionary from his home church in Antioch. Acts 13, 46 says, Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, a Jewish audience, It was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken unto you, but seeing ye put it from you, and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. So now, the church of Jesus Christ is the spiritual congregation of the Lord in this dispensation. Jesus Christ himself is the royal seed. He is the vine. He is the ultimate fulfillment of what Israel typified. And that vine like Israel in the Old Testament, was to branch out and produce fruit all over the world. Well, how do we know that? Well, because Jesus left us with the Great Commission. And when we read things like Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, that you'll receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you'll be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. Well, we know that that's what he intended. The vine was going to branch out and produce fruit all over the world. And the early church, and you have to get this, fully understood that that command in the book of Acts, when they went out 
preaching the gospel to new places included the establishment of new churches wherever they went. The Apostle Paul becomes the key figure at this point of history, and I want you to notice the specific wording he used under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to this Corinthian church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse number 6, Paul writing to the church says, I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. And he was talking to a local church. Paul planted that church back in Acts chapter 18. They were Paul's plant. And Apollos came behind and helped grow this plant. And these three statements in verse number six are gonna give us our outline for the rest of the evening as we look at our, or let me say it to you, your role in church planting. I want you to understand what your role is gonna be as we look at this point because, well, it concerns your activity and your decisions. So I've read a couple of verses. Let me just go back and read verses six through nine and we'll jump into our outline. Paul says, I've planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry, and ye are God's building. And you know the passage, it continues on, and it begins to talk about the judgment seat of Christ. And dependent upon how you respond to this, God will judge at that day when you stand before him to see whether you have gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or stubble. But the, the points that we're gonna look at are very simple. Plant, water, and increase. The first thing I want us to see is plant. It says Paul planted. Now to plant something, you understand what he's trying to say. It's to put or set in forth in the ground of seeds or young trees or furnish an area to stock it with plants or trees or something like that. So let me just start by getting this obvious but, dare I say, profound point out of the way up front. This is going to be really deep. You want to get ready for this. A seed cannot plant itself. Paul says, I have planted a seed can't plant itself. Somebody else has to plant it. Seeds don't just jump out of the seed bag and dig a hole in the dirt and cover them, themselves up with the dirt. Somebody else has to do that, right? So similarly, and I have this in your notes, biblical churches don't plant themselves. You need to understand that. They don't just jump out of the seed bag of their existing church because they don't like it there anymore, because they're frustrated and they just want to go do their own thing. So all of this independent, unilateral, parachurch ministry emphasis is not biblical and most certainly is not what we read in the scriptures, the planting of the Lord, period. And any church that started themselves is not a biblical church. And can I just counsel you? It should be avoided. Because that, my friends, is a wild seed. You don't want to eat from that tree. But Paul is the missionary. He's sent out from his local church in Antioch of Syria to fulfill the Great Commission. And that included evangelism, discipleship, and church planting, and the ultimate training and ordaining of men to be elders and pastors over that church. The Bible makes it very clear we're to follow Paul's example. 
What exactly is Paul's example? I don't think you can find a clearer place to describe it than Acts chapter 14, verses 21 to 23. What did Paul do? The end of his first missionary journey. Verse 21, and when they had preached the gospel to that city, evangelism, and had taught many discipleship, they returned again to Lystra and to Iconium, to Antioch, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith and that we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. And when they had ordained them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. So in your notes, I put this statement, planting is the work to begin new life. That's what planting is. There was no life in the dirt here and somebody planted new life in a new location, something where something did not previously exist. Because the goal of planting is fruit bearing. It's reproduction. That's why another metaphor for the church is that of a body. The church is not an, organ, an organization, we know that, it's a living organism, it has life, it's the life of Jesus Christ. And it's like birthing a new human being, planting a, a new organic plant requires a lot of work and sacrifice. It's hard, it's expensive, it's painful at times. So what does Jesus say in John chapter 16? In verse 21, he says, a woman when she's in travail hath sorrow because her hour is come, but as soon as she's delivered of the child, she remembereth no more the anguish for joy that a man is born into the world. Well, so it is with church planting. I've planted a church. I was a missionary sent from my local church to help fulfill the Great Commission in the nation of Albania. I was all alone when I started in 1992. There was no churches, no Bible, no gospel tracts, no Christian songs, no Christians. And we planted the seed of the Word of God, that's evangelism, over and over in the hearts of many people. And when it took root and grew, we assembled together and baptized many and formed a local church. By the way, that's what a biblical New Testament church is, an assembly of born-again, baptized believers led by a qualified, ordained, sent man of God. And if you don't have all of those elements, you don't have a biblical church, period. Now, you don't want to know how hard those early years were for me. I mean, this is a missions conference, and part of our goal is to get you all jazzed up so you want to do it. If I start telling you about how hard it was, it'll kind of, you know, kind of mess it up, and Sam will be mad. No, the truth is, is the early years in, the, in, any, in any new work are hard. And look, I'm not trying to complain. I'm just trying to help you understand. I had endless days and nights, evangelism, follow-up, discipleship, language learning, culture, life learning, feeling like the weight of the world was on my shoulders and literally after about six months of doing that, my fatigue was so great that my body stopped working. It literally shut down. I couldn't walk as far from here to the back of the auditorium without having to sit down and rest. I had to take one or two weeks and literally go stay with another missionary family that I knew and just sleep on their couch for like two weeks and have the wife just like feed me soup and let me just rest for a while and catch up. Hard work, stress, tears, pain. But God did something there. And today there's three established mature churches led by 
men that I got to train. They're starting a fourth right now and have plans for a fifth coming in a couple of years in the near future. They've sent a missionary to the country of Turkey and in the spring of this year, they're preparing to send their next missionary to the bordering country of Kosovo. Do you know what I think of now when I look back on that ministry in Albania? Well, it's not the pain and the blood and the sweat and the tears and the agony and the fatigue. I don't think about those things. You know what I think about? I think about the joy. I think about the gratitude and the fulfillment. But you know what? None of that exists if somebody doesn't take the initiative to plant. I mean, after all, aren't we supposed to follow Paul? Paul planted. Well, the second point is water. It says Apollos watered. And if planting is the work to begin new life, watering is the work to sustain existing life. It's the work of nurturing a plant that already exists. It's doing whatever is necessary to keep that thing alive and give it the best possible chance to produce fruit. That's the goal. It's the work of daily maintenance and it's crucial to the health of the plant. So similarly, churches need a lot of maintenance or they'll die. There's a lot of work in watering. In fact, the vast majority of church work is in watering. I mean, rare is the guy who'll venture out and start a new church, but many are the laborers that wanna come along and water along the way. Praise the Lord for that. You don't have to be the planter you can come alongside the planter and be a waterer. And so with that, I want to help you understand what the work of watering really is all about. There's two main aspects. The first one, letter A, in your outline is to feed. So there's a secondary dictionary definition I pulled. I did the obligatory dictionary.com thing. And the secondary definition of to plant I thought was pretty cool. And it really applies because it says this, that to plant also can mean to establish or implant ideas, principles, and doctrines. Now, if you knew me personally, you would know that I kind of like spy movies. It's just, it's a genre I like. And maybe it's because I lived in a commie country for 14 years, I don't know. But when you think about spy movies, a lot of times they'll say things like, the government planted a spy, right? And uh, why do they do that? Well, certainly they want that spy to gather very important intel, but part of the reason is is they want that person to begin to propagate, to implant in the minds of those people among whom they're now living secretly, covertly, their new ideas and principles and doctrines. Well, similarly, that's kind of the idea of what a new church is planted to do. A new church is planted to establish life in a place where there was not previous life to establish biblical principles and doctrine in that place. They need to understand the doctrines of salvation, eternal security, baptism, the authority of the Word of God, the Holy Spirit, Christian service, all these things. But that doctrine has to be watered it has to be fed, reinforced, nurtured, or else bad doctrine's gonna creep in. Jesus warned in Matthew 13, 24 and 25, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man which sowed good seed in his field, but while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat 
and went his way. And the enemy is always looking to implant rogue ideas in a church. Salvation by works, charismatic nonsense, you can lose your salvation, you should speak in unknown tongues. Calvinism, legalism, modernism, pragmatism. Become worldly so that you can win the world. Intellectualism, there's no perfect word of God available in English, and so on and so forth. How do these teachings get a foothold in a church? Men slept. Men slept. Proverbs 19, 15 says, Slothfulness casteth into a deep sleep, and an idle soul shall suffer hunger. So what's the result? People in churches all over the world are starving for good spiritual food. So God sets men in the position of pastors and shepherds to make sure the integrity of the church remains intact. This requires constant feeding of the right diet of spiritual food. That's watering. But the other aspect, letter B in your outline, is to weed. We have to feed. Now you also have to understand that it's going to require to the ability to weed. So God uses men like Apollos to do this necessary maintenance. And when Jesus refers to the maintenance of the plant in John 15, 2, he talks about purging. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. So purging, or sometimes we refer to it as pruning, cutting away the portion that hinders fruit bearing. Well, sometimes that's just faithfully teaching the right doctrine. Give no place to the devil. But sometimes that requires some rebuke and reproof. Sometimes you have to contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. And on occasion, it may even mean church discipline and the removal of sinful, divisive people. All with the goal of producing more fruit, spiritual reproduction. I mean, that's why God made plants from the very beginning, right? Genesis chapter one, verse 11, God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, the fruit tree yielding fruit after its kind. Notice whose seed is in itself upon the earth, and it was so. God made the fruit to come from the trees that has the seed within itself. Why did he put the seeds in the fruit? So you could get them stuck in your teeth? No. So that the seeds could multiply into more fruit-bearing plants. I told you I've been involved in planting. Well, I've been involved in watering as well. I took the pastorate of a well-established church in New Philadelphia, Ohio back in 2008. And they were a fruitful plant for many, many years. In fact, that church was established as a church before Kansas was established as a state. Before World War, I mean World War, forget World War, Civil War, <laughs> 1858. And they were a fruitful plant for many years, but, well, they had a season of neglect. They were without a pastor for about 14 months with no one really watering, feeding, caring, nurturing, protecting. And well, some weeds had grown up among the plant and tried to choke it out. And the church was getting weaker and it needed some maintenance. There's no shame in that, that's life, that happens. But that's what's required to continue fruit bearing. We had our problems, it was hard work, there was pain involved. We had to do some purging. 
But now we're healthier than ever. Praise the Lord. And I thank God for the Apollos' that are out there. And maybe God will call some of you to be an Apollos, either right here where you're at or in a new plant that somebody else is planting. Or, or maybe, they'll call, maybe God will call some of you to go and take over a church that's really struggling and just needs somebody to care for it. We just did that with a man from our church, sent him to take over a church that was really struggling about 35 minutes away from where we're at. But let me just say this, at the end of the day, I mean, who really cares what your specific role is? Just figure it out and do it. All that really matters, you figure it out and you actually do it because if anything worthy is going to get done, friends, God's the one who's gonna do it anyway, right? So that's obviously our third point, increase. God gave the increase. And let me just remind you of something you already know, and this I have again in a statement in your notes. You can't create life. You couldn't possibly do it. Not on your best day. Because this is a spiritual work. God has to do it. You're just signing up to be, like it says in 1 Corinthians 3, laborers together with God. Amen? Amen. And since the goal is fruit-bearing and reproduction... Well, the idea is is that we see increase in fruit, right? We're to be fruitful, but then we're to multiply. That fruit's to multiply, and it's to continue to multiply until we replenish the earth. So I'm going to take a minute, and I want to push the pause button for just a second, and I'm going to kind of take us on a little brief journey, and we'll, we'll land the plane in a minute, okay? But, but stick with me for a second, because I want you to... I want you to walk through this logic that I walked through as I was considering this message. And I want you to think about what that might look like in these last days of the church age. And because I know this thought's crossed my mind, I figured it might have crossed your mind as well. We might as well talk about it. So the statement I have to kick off this section is, wise men know the times. That's a clear Bible principle. Wise men know the times. Esther chapter 1 and verse 13, the king said to the wise men, which knew the times, how do you define a wise man? Somebody who knows the times. David had his band of mighty men and among them in 1 Chronicles 12, 32 were these children of Issachar. And it said, which were men that had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. Do you want to know what you ought to do, church? You probably ought to have an understanding of the times. Jesus Christ expects that you do. Matthew 16, 3, where he says, Oh, you hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky, but can you not discern the sign of the times? You ought to be able to do that. So does Paul. Paul expects it too. In Romans chapter 13, 11 and 12, where he says this, and that knowing the time, he just expects that the audience knows the time. Knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, you see, when men sleep, there's trouble, right? For now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent. The night, well, that's the church age. The day, that's the day of the Lord. That's the rising of the S-U-N, son of righteousness with healing in his wings. That's the second coming of Jesus Christ, the ushering in of the millennium. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Now, I personally believe that we're in the very last minutes of the last days of the church age. In fact, I believe it so much that 
I have taught some things that have made some of my friends a little nervous. Okay, that's fine. That's not the story for tonight, but I do want to say this. I've never said, check all the records you want, never one time. Have I said, I know when the Lord's coming back for sure? That would be ridiculous. Unlike I've heard others say, and a lot of you know this stuff, and this isn't really the message, but I have to get this out. I mean, a lot of you know the Bible timelines. I mean, if you're going to know the times, you know that God created everything in six literal 24-hour days, and a day with the Lord is 1,000 years, and 6,000 years a man, and we've been on the planet about 6,000 years, and four days till Jesus, and two days since Jesus, and I know I'm talking fast, but most of you know this. And if you don't, it's not that big a deal anyway, but just know we're near the end. And you go even deeper than that because then the Bible talks about this fig tree which clearly is a picture of Israel who puts forth leaves and becomes a nation in 1948 and it, this generation as defined as 70 to 80 years in Psalms chapter 90 is going to see the very end when everything comes to a, to a climax and well if you do the math 1948 and the maximum 80 is going to go to 2028 and if you subtract seven year tribulation off of that the rapture has to be in 2021. I've heard people say that. Well, I wonder how those people are thinking right now. <laughs> I always give disclaimers. I don't know exactly when the Lord's coming. Obviously, the math can be off a little bit. God's smarter than we are. But I, I want to tell you, I'm currently of the opinion that this world is primed and ready for the rapture any day now. And based on what I know and what I'm seeing... My current guess is what it is. Now, my guesses over the years, you know. That's why I'm never sure that I know the way it's going to be. But I'd say, you know, don't worry too much about your 401Ks. Like that, you know, I just think that. <laughs> okay, so why bring that up now? What's the point? Why are you talking about this? Well, because for me at least, that issue of the times and where we are on God's clock frames every other issue of ministry for me now. With only this much time left, here's the big question. Here's where we bring it back home. What should I be doing? Or what should I not be wasting my time doing? Does that make sense? So here's the question. This is in your notes. Is starting new churches at the end of the church age strategic? I mean, it's a fair question. I mean, if there's no time to really get them going, should we be focused on some other work? You know Ecclesiastes chapter 3 starts off, to everything there's a season and a time to every purpose under the heaven, a time to be born and a time to die. Notice, a time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted. Clearly, there's a time to not plant, Right? You see that? Are we at that time? Let me come at it another way. The church age, it's referred to as a harvest. And in any harvest, there's clearly three parts. There's the first fruits, there's the main harvest, and there's the gleanings. And we see that illustrated in 1 Corinthians 15, 23, and 24. And the idea is, is that the first fruits, well, you know how that is. A few fruit come out on the plant early. Not a lot, few and far between, but a few of them start to pop out early. And then you have the main bulk of the harvest when you have the harvest time when the plant is really putting it out. 
And then at the very end, after the main harvest is over, you know, a lot of plants will just have a few and far between fruit that'll pop out late in the season. And I say that to say this. The harvest, this is in your notes, ends like it begins. It starts with a few fruit here and there, and it ends with a few fruit here and there. It wraps up the same way it launched. It's kind of interesting. And I think so it is with the church age. I think the church age is going to end like it began. We know that God gives us the prescription for the entirety of the church age in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 with the seven churches representing seven periods of the church throughout history. And the very first church of the seven is the church in Ephesus. And it's further described in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. And the seventh is the church of Laodicea, which is further described in Paul's epistle to the Colossians. Now, I don't know if you've ever noticed or not how similar the messages of Ephesians and Colossians are. So I went through and I I listed every single verse side by side in both epistles, and I found that there's exactly 39 verses in the book of Ephesians that are also in Colossians. So much of the same message is communicated to both churches because both churches must be dealing with similar circumstances. So if that's the case, I mean, what, what do we know about church planning in the early church era? Well, we know what the book of Acts tells us. People went out by faith, sharing the gospel boldly through much persecution. And when people believed, they established churches, biblical churches, that met, well, wherever they could meet, in people's houses, under trees, at riverbanks, or whatever the case might be. And so I would make this statement, it's a commonly used expression, also in your notes, form always follows function. Form always follows function. They set up the function first, and eventually then the form, a lot of the structure of what we understand of church, well, that came later. That's what we know about the early church era. Well, what about the days we live in today? Well, Paul calls them perilous times. And such they are as the unified one world socialist takeover has taken clear steps forward. And you mark it down, friends. You mark it down. The goal behind all the craziness that's going on in the global political scale today is not what you think it is and it's not what the news is telling you it is. And it's not left versus right and conservative versus liberal and it's not any of those things. Those are all a smokescreen. The real agenda behind all of it, the goal is to stop the church of Jesus Christ from functioning. The mystery of iniquity is already at work. And the man of sin is in the wings waiting until he who now letteth be taken out of the way. And he can have full and free reign as the son of perdition. And at the end of that time, that process is going to be dismantled, I believe, in reverse. You see, little by little, the devil is going to work to take away our form with the ultimate question, if he takes away your form, will it stop you from doing the function? 
You see, in 2020, they tried to stop our ability to gather. And you know what that did? That did away with some of the weaker, more carnal brethren who only needed a good excuse to stop coming to church. Since then, they've made it much harder to travel internationally. Many countries won't even allow foreign travel at all, hindering the work of personal foreign missions and missionaries. And we're stepping into a time now where many people are losing their jobs with rampant inflation and unconstitutional government mandates. And soon enough, they're going to be able to monitor every transaction you make with the goal of keeping you from even funding the mission. He's trying to dismantle the form of the church with assembly and travel and funding. But will you let that stop your function? Will you? That's my question for you tonight. Are you just going to throw in the towel and hunker down and ride out the storm until the end? Thank God that you're saved and hope for the best for everybody else. That's not what Paul thinks we should do. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, 2 Timothy 4, 1 and 2 is still in the Bible. I charge thee therefore before God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. I think that's the context of 1 Corinthians 3, isn't it? Preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. I don't care what season it is. Be instant to do the work anyways. That's what he's saying. Preach the word. Make disciples. Start churches. Tell the devil where he's going. Tell him that you don't care what he throws at you and show that you will obey God no matter what. Hebrews 10, 23 to 25, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. For he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. You need to know the times. And it doesn't matter if this is all the time we got left. So much the more we exhort one another to continue to assemble together. That's what a church is, by the way, by definition. It's an assembly. It's an assembly of ourselves together. Do you realize how many places around the world don't have a church where believers can come together and assemble? Do you know why that is? Because nobody's gone there to start one. That's why. Quit worrying about the circumstances. God gives the increase. Amen? We're not going to look at this passage of Scripture. I'm just going to paraphrase it for you. In Matthew chapter 20, the first 16 verses is a parable. It's the story of a householder who goes out to hire laborers into his vineyard. He sets a wage and he puts them to work. And throughout the day, he finds other guys just standing around, idle, doing nothing. So he hires them into the work as well, even until the 11th hour of a 12-hour day. And he calls these men into work, and at the end of the day, he gives each one their rewards to the point where even the 11th hour worker gets the same wage as those who worked and bore the heat of the entire day. And he ends it with verse 16, the last shall be first, and the first last, for many be called, but few chosen. He chooses the ones that respond to the call those who get up and get to work.
And he expects you to do that right up until the very end. We know that by one of our most popular verses we ever use for the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Read it again with me, verse 19. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. We have evangelism, we have disciple making, baptizing them, the establishment of bringing them together into a church. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things, a teaching and training, equipping ministry. Whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you all way. Oh yeah, even unto the end of the world. Keep doing all of those things even until the very last day. Who cares what season it is? Who cares what time it is? God gives the increase. You plant, you water, and let God do what only God can do. So my question for you is, what are you doing? Are you one of those that in the parable would be standing around idle while there's work to be done in the vineyard? Well, we are well into the 11th hour and the Lord would like to put you to hire as well. He would like for you to get busy. Paul planted I've planted. Would you consider planting a church somewhere? I mean, you'll need to complete your training and get the approval of your church and all that. I get it, but that's doable, right? We're supposed to follow his example, right? Apollos watered. I've watered. Would you consider helping water a young church that someone else planted? Could you use your gifts and abilities to help grow and nurture people? I mean, if anything good has come from anything I've ever done, it's only because God gave the increase, amen? Of course he did. Why wouldn't he, by the way? That's what he does. So my final thought for you is this final statement. Would you be willing to increase your influence through church planning, even through the hardships and persecutions that likely will come? Because considering the times and the seasons we are in, really, I mean really, what else are you gonna invest your little remaining time and resources in? Seriously, your retirement and for what? Your personal pleasure and your hobbies and your activities and, and your mastery of some dumb video game and what, I mean, come on. If you believe half of what you say you believe, there's only one answer. Yes, Lord. Let me pray for us and we'll be done. Lord Jesus, thank you for the truth of your word and thank you for the example Paul planted, Apollos watered, but you give the increase. I pray, Lord Jesus, for this church and for the brothers and sisters that are listening wherever they are, that you would stir hearts and that each would be ready to respond and say yes. Wherever, whenever, wherever, however you would call me, I'm ready. I don't know what it'll cost me. I don't even care. I'll trust you and I'll do it. Lord, let me be an 11th hour worker. I, you are worthy. I pray in Christ's name, amen.